You'll see an outline there on page five of the booklet. And in that outline, it just really starts with really our biggest problem to introduce it. And that is, friends, we all have at the heart blinding pride. Blinding pride. Uh, Pride is one of those hardest things. It's one of the hardest sins to see, isn't it? It's the hardest sin to see in me. It's the hardest sin for you and I to see in our hearts. You see, we we can see pride in other people, can't we? We're, We're pretty good at that. We can look at someone else and we can point out your pride. But we have trouble finding mine. We can see pride like that in others because pride is one of those sins that shape shifts in us. It's one of those sins that morphs and becomes something else and it camouflages so that if we become so overwhelmingly self-centred, we might look self-centred. In fact, we we make it not look like we're self-centred. We might say, I'm so bad at this, I'm not good at this, and I'm this. And actually, that's a form of pride. That, That becomes all about me. Pride shape shifts. Pride, of course, is one of those original sin categories. It's where the devil has his downfall. And it comes before many of our falls, doesn't it? Just when we think we're doing okay, just when I think I'm actually going pretty well and it's everyone else's problem, it's not mine, pride comes and we fall down. And pride, spiritual blindness, is our problem in John 9. Pride is the diagnosis of the spiritual blindness throughout John 9. No matter who is speaking and who has the issues here, pride is the problem. It's a blinding pride and the question for us today when we meet Jesus here is, could you see? If only we could see. This is the title of the sermon. Before we point out someone else's problems, could we see our own? I often say this if I'm training leaders or if we're speaking at churches at presbytery level. If our problem as a church is someone else's fault, if it's, if it's our problems as a church is because of another church, or if, or if my problems as a leader is because of someone else over there, can I ever fix them? And no, I can't, because I'm not the cause of my problems, someone else over there is. Pride will not let me own my problems, but if I can say my problems are my problems, then I can actually address them. If only we could see, friends... And I say we because pride is so problematic in our fallen condition. And we must see. We must see that that looking at those who are spiritually blind and just pointing the finger or wagging our finger is the kind of pride that God actually opposes. James writes, Peter writes, it's throughout the scriptures. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So just imagine, as soon as we sort of see that pride rising in ourselves and recognise it, we should be actually wanting to put that to death because God is against those who are proud. As we start the scene today, the context of pride just blows up in front of everyone. It blows up and pops up and that's what pride does, isn't it? I've heard it said that pride is like blowing up a balloon. You know, every time you inflate the balloon with more pride, well, that was a bit loud, wasn't it? Media team love me when I do stuff with microphones. Just don't jump. We've, we've seen that. didn't go well. 
as you blow the balloon up. What happens to a balloon as you blow it up? The pride increases, the pride increases, but the walls of the balloon get thinner. So that when something comes along and it pops that balloon easily and pride blows up. It blows up your life. As we start this scene today, the context has been that. We are in John chapters 7 and then 8. And right at the end of John chapter 8, and you'll pick it up there in that final scene in that last verse of John 8, we see that here is pride and it's taking the Pharisees to levels haven't seen before. They pick up verse 59, 8, 59, they pick up stones to throw at him, to throw at Jesus. They pick up stones to throw at Jesus. These are not pebbles, just because they're a bit annoyed. These are, we want to kill you stones. And so we pick it up then in in John chapter 9, verse 1. Right at the end of that scene, Jesus walks out of the temple. And as he's passing out of the temple and he's passing by, he sees, we see in verse 1, a man born blind from birth. And that's when the disciples in verse 2 ask a most awkward question. You've got one of those friends where you've been in a circle of friends and people ask awkward things loudly, often embarrassingly, and other people hear it. Now, we don't know if this man, the the man born blind from birth, we don't know if he heard the awkward question, but it's a pretty awkward question, isn't it? And, And said that way, perhaps so loudly, in front of him. A friend who's mostly blind and his hearing is actually quite acute because that's what he has to rely upon here is an awkward question it's it's actually it feels like an awful question the disciples ask and we see this is where the miracle comes of course but they have to ask the question verse 2 who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind jesus you you know who sinned do you see how awkward this is There's a presumption going on here, and it was around back then, that when you suffer, there's a direct cause of a specific sin in your life. And what these disciples ask is actually a prideful question, isn't it? It's a prideful presumption. For they're not blind. They're quite well at the moment. And they might pity the man a little bit oh poor man he's blind from birth but they're not in his shoes they're not in his sandals and they're kind of happy about that and with that kind of comfort that they have they can ask this dry doctrinal philosophical question that's heartless jesus as we go and get coffee who sinned this man or his parents Let's talk about it. Their assumption is there is a straight line, a direct line between sin and suffering. And they just want to know who did it. And for them, it's actually just a two-option answer. Because the presumption is someone did something. So it's got to be either him or his parents. And they pick up, which often people do today, Old Testament passages that speak to the third and fourth generation say, See? That man must have sinned, or it must have been his parents. Jesus, which one it was? You tell us. Now, that's a first century assumption. It's a sad assumption. And, of course, educated people today would never assume such things, would we? Except, sadly, we do. Friends, it wasn't that long ago 
that there were preachers saying 9-11 happened because the people in that building were sinful people. There were preachers making a direct line between a suffering and a sin. And as they saw Twin Towers go down, it wasn't that they waited a couple of years to talk about it. They said it within society's hearing. Yet what does Jesus say? Speaking of towers, what does Jesus say? When it comes to sin and suffering in a direct line, go back in your Bibles to Luke 13. Speaking of towers, Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? Luke 13 verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, Well, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There is no necessary direct line between you suffering and a specific sin that you've done or your parents have done. There's no direct line you can make there. Last year, we preached for the book of Job for a whole term. Now, lots of preachers, you know, we're, we're tempted. I'm tempted to do Job in three because it's so big and let's just talk about the big idea. But we were in Job for so long it felt like we were suffering with him. And we felt that because it was during COVID and all the stuff that was going on. And for us, we understood the cycles of Job, the speeches, the questions his friends are asking. Did you sin, Job? What did you do to deserve this? And the answer, of course, there was no straight line. And do you see Jesus' words here? Look in John 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, It's not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The man is blind. Lots of people are blind, or deaf, or mute, or lame, or sick. So many people, there would not be a person in this room that wouldn't know someone with cancer. They wouldn't know someone, my cousin, 35, died of cancer. There would not be someone who has not known or known or related to someone with suffering of some form in their life. And what does Jesus say here in verse 3? He turns upside down our assumptions, doesn't he, friends? We think suffering means I've done something to deserve this specifically. But we live in a broken world, a fallen world, a suffering world. We suffer because sin is in the world, yes. We suffer because death is coming for us all, yes. But Jesus says in verse 3, It's not that this man sinned nor his parents. Why is he born blind? For this moment, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Have you thought about this? That your suffering... Trials of various kinds, James calls it in his letter in chapter 1. The groanings of the world of Romans 8. Is it possible that your suffering exists to even glorify God who you hold your hope in no matter what? 
is your suffering even seeing you savour Christ all the more? Because I think the danger of the church here in Australia, in the West, is not more suffering, it's more comfort. Comfort that inoculates us against hearing, repent, or you will perish. And Jesus is not saying you'll just die, he's saying perish forever. The sufferings in our world are just symptoms of the big, awful thing that is coming, that is death forever, a suffering that is eternal. But Jesus says, this man born blind, the works of God are going to be displayed in him. Jesus says one of those I am statements in verse 5. He says, I am the light of the world. He's already said this. I'm the light of the world. And he mirrors what God does in Genesis at this point. Jesus has been saying in John 7 and John 8, and the Pharisees have been disagreeing. The dialogue has gone on and on and on. And Jesus' big point is this. He is God. And what does the light of the world, God, do now? We read Genesis 2 for a reason. We always have that cross-reference passage. In Genesis 2, backing off to Genesis 1, what is God's first big creating act? Let there be light. And here is the light of the world. Here is the light of the world in this first of his big creating acts. And what does he do? Like we saw in Genesis 2. In, in Genesis 2, God takes dust and makes humanity. And what is God now doing before us? He takes dust, turns it into mud to restore humanity. He's recreating, restoring a fallen, broken humanity right before their eyes in a blind man's eyes. And after anointing this man's eyes with mud, he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And as he goes and washes, Jesus, God, works. The works of God are being displayed. That's what's happening. It's not just Jesus, the prophet working. It's not just Jesus who happens to be miracle worker working. Jesus says, I'm doing this so that you actually witness the work of God here. That you get who I am. And it's amazing, isn't it? Here is a blind man from birth who now sees. And his neighbours are so amazed, they cannot believe their own eyes. You look at verse 9. Some said, it is he. Others said, no, there's, there's no, it's no one like him. It's not even like, doesn't look like him. And, he, and the man has to keep saying, I'm that man. And they want to know, who did this? Where's the man called Jesus? But no one knows. And so they take the man born blind to the Pharisees. And here's where we see total and utter blind rejection. John writes in verse 13, here is the man, and notice what he's called in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. I grew up in the 90s, 80s, 90s, and there was a musician that you probably haven't heard of if you're younger than me, but his name was, and someone's going to have to help me. I forget his original name, actually. And then it was Prince, and then it was the man, or the artist formerly known as Prince. It changed a few times. It's kind of like that, isn't it? This man goes through some name changes. We're never told his actual name, but he was the man who was born blind, and now he's called the man who was formerly born blind. And he's taken to the Pharisees. 
Now, this would be a cheerful event, normally. If you are born blind, you are excluded from that central part of the temple that you could be included in. This would normally be a celebratory event. Wow, amazing! You've been healed. Come on in. What do the Pharisees say? What is their issue here? Do you see? Verse 14. Oh, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And from what we know in John's Gospel of the Pharisees, they really don't like this sort of thing happening on the Sabbath. They ask the man to recount what happened, which he does. You have to do it several times, actually, for them. And their conclusion is, Jesus is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Why do they assume that? Why do they assume that Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath and he's not from God? Because they treat the Lord's Day like our society does. That's why. Our society actually is a bunch of Pharisees when it comes to the Lord's Day. That's a bit surprised, isn't it? Here's why. We've talked about this before, actually, in John's Gospel. We've quoted the Shabbat. The Shabbat is a Jewish set of writings that gives them extra laws and things, and the Pharisees particularly dependent upon it. So Shabbat 7.2 says things like this. This is what you're prohibited to do on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to weave two threads. You can't sever two threads. Can't tie a knot or untie a knot. Can't sew two stitches. Can't tear a fabric. Can't sew two stitches. Write two letters, that is two... Uh, letters on a page. You can't erase two letters, extinguish a fire, light a fire. You can't do anything but basically just kind of sit there and not even walk many places. That's what the Pharisees hold to. Now, what, what does our society do? The Pharisees are Pharisees because they're actually adding laws to God's Sabbath. That's what they do. They add laws to it to make it more restricting. And ironically enough, the Sabbath was meant to be restful, but they actually stop it being restful and they make it restrictive, even restricting ministries of mercy. The Westminster Confession says, what is the Sabbath for? It's for gathering to hear God's grace with God's people and to undertake ministries of mercy, to restore people. See, the Lord's Day, friends, Sunday is meant to be restorative. Come along and collapse into God's grace and be restored. But what does our society do with such a day? Oh no, we'd rather work. Now, I grew up with my mum being a midwife and a nurse for 40 odd years. And she worked uh, lots of night shifts so she could help raise my sister and I. She also worked on Sundays a fair bit. Which meant for her, being a Christian person, Sabbath was precious. Like if she could get to church, she would because she desperately needed to collapse into the grace of God and hear God's word, have his ear in prayer with his people. But our society and friends, I'm I'm concerned that we, we actually turn the Sabbath into not a time of rest and restoration. Jesus, God himself, has created the Sabbath for our rest. And like we sang, but instead we work our fingers to the bone. Think on this. The Sabbath is a day of rest. Resting in the finished work of God. Yet what do often we do on the Sabbath? We catch up with work. And we worry if I don't catch up with work, that I won't keep up with work. 
And we make rules and standards and values for ourselves that we try and live up to, but we can't. And then we never rest properly. We never rest in the finished work of Christ, saying, you know what, I'm not God. I could actually down tools and trust that he's still got my life. I'll still be able to pay the bills. I'll still be able to give and serve and love and rest. And we try and save face, but we create our own face. At face value, we're not succeeding. We're sinking at this, friends. Because we're missing out on the love of God and the word of God with the people of God. And God reminds us we are not God. The Sabbath was meant to restore our souls so that we would savor Christ for one day a week. Every day you can do it, by the way. Romans 12, every day is daily worship, but for one day a week that we could actually savour Christ all day, that we could not look at work on the screen for one day, but look at God's word and his scriptures for one day and actually hear him speak into our hearts, focus on him. Do you know what would change your life? You would actually change. I know some of you don't believe me. No, I need to work. I need to catch up. I need to do it every single week. Why? What's happening on the other days? Friends, the Sabbath is for your rest, to rest in the finished work of Christ so we can savour him. The Pharisees turn it into a day of restrictive work and so do we. It's a gift. You see, the way they treat the Sabbath and the way often we and our society does, we suck the means of grace out of it. the Pharisees of that day, of course, they don't believe this guy, verse 18. They don't even believe he was born blind. They can't believe it. It's so unbelievable. So where are his parents? His parents were to come up in the disciples' conversation. Now they come up for the Pharisees. Where are your parents? Where's mum and dad? They asked him. They asked their parents, verse 19. Is this your son that you say was born blind? How does he then see? His parents answered, Oh, we know this is our son. It's definitely him and he was born blind. But now that he sees, we do not know how. We do not know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Verse 22. Why did they say this? Because they're fearful. You see, the Pharisees run a ruling religion based upon fear. Not out of love. Not out of grace. It's based on fear. And these poor parents, they fear people more than they do God. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to fear people more than God? It is an awful place to be. It is a shuddering, awful place to be. Because what starts happening is, when you start fearing people more than God, you elevate those people to be at the level of God... I know we've all been there, I've been there, and we feel like they've got some control and we forget who really is in control. And I I feel for them because we've all been there, right? You've met controlling people, you've met bullies. They're out there and sometimes they get in here, in your head. And these Pharisees are being manipulative and abusive and narcissistic and legalist, self-righteous bullies. But in this episode, they are particularly being blind to the blazing truth of the light of the world who is Christ. 
And the parents of the man who was blind, as they fear people more than God, they say, our sons of age, you ask him. You can ask him. And here we have an interaction that is comical, except it's tragic. They ask him again. Look at verse 24. For the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God, and we know this man is a sinner. That's the assumption going here. But do we? Do we know this? Do we know Jesus is a sinner? What evidence have you got that Jesus is a sinner? If you've just got John's Gospel, that's what we've been in so far, what evidence have we got in John's Gospel? Can you find any evidence of Jesus being a sinner? Why do we know this? Why do we assume this? And the man born blind says it simply, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. What are you going to do with that, Pharisees? And they they put pressure on him. They said to him, what did he do to you? Did he open your eyes? Tell us, what did he do? And the man, probably with cheer because he's opened his eyes, I mean, you, you can actually withhold anything. When people speak about you, when they speak negatively to you, when they grumble in your face, the best thing to do is to have your joy in Jesus. Because this man has his joy in Jesus. And when you have joy in Jesus, you can withhold anything like that. You won't give a thin cent what people say. And the man says, I love it, in verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already and you will not listen. What, what do you want to hear it again? <laughs> do you also want to become his disciples? Interested? There's a sign-up form. I can get it for you. He says it with such joy because he's got Jesus. What have they got? Grumble. Grumbling hearts. They can't see who Jesus is. With the words already said, with the works of God just done, they cannot spiritually see. And here is where this man's answer is incredibly insightful. For he sees not just with his own eyes, he actually perceives who Jesus actually is. Verse 30. Why, it's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, he says. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he listens to him. And here's 32. Get this. Verse 32 sums up the Bible. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Have a look and you'll find that's true. There's a lot of miracles in the Bible. But never has it been heard since Genesis that this particular incident in this particular way has happened. And the man says, it's an amazing thing. And you guys aren't amazed? You guys are just grumbling and cranky? What's your problem? Do you want to be his disciples? It'll actually make your life better. You'd be a bit more happier. The man sees right through the Pharisees, doesn't he? He sees right through them now. Not physically, because he can see. He sees right through their guile spiritually. And the man is 100% right. Here is this man who ends up being the teacher of the disciples of Moses, as they call them. We're disciples of Moses. Okay, let me teach you something then. Here is the man who we see thirdly is seeing with reception. This is what seeing is. It is receiving. The Pharisees cast him out and said, Jesus does what he does with cast out people. He brings him in. Cast out people come to Jesus and they get to come in. Truly in. 
Verse 35, Jesus heard they cast him out and he asked him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers that question. Now, this, this question is a favorite saying of Jesus. Jesus often calls himself the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel 7, which was in our call to worship this morning. In Daniel 7, we see a picture there. Daniel has a vision of the future where there is God, the Ancient of Days, in the heavenlies. And then all of a sudden, out of like nowhere, except it is from somewhere, because the scriptures have been prophesying this, all of a sudden, there is this one who looks like a... Hang on, he looks like a human, a son, not of God, but a son of man. And here Jesus picks up the language of a human, son of man, who is the son of God, truly human, truly God. Here is a human, the God-man, who is given all authority, dominion and kingdom, power and forever and ever. Jesus says, that's me. Do you believe in the son of man? And the blind man, who was formerly blind, says... Just to clarify, verse 36, who is that that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, it is he who is speaking to you. It is he who is speaking to you. And as Jesus finishes, he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. In verse 40, we see the Pharisees hear this and they say, are we also blind? And Jesus says, well, if you were, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, you are guilty. You've seen everything. We've had Two chapters of conversation on this. You've now seen the works of God in this man who was formerly blind. You say we see. Therefore, to not believe like this man who believes means you're guilty. Friends, it is the height of prideful hypocrisy to see Jesus, to say you know who he is, and not worship him. The man's response was not just, I believe and that's interesting and I'm now going to learn a bit more. It was to, you see this? It's actually it's written there for us. John writes it. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. It's to have your affections so for Jesus that you would say, I would see you as more important. I would fear you more than people. I would live for you more than I do my money. I would live for you more than I do my work. I would actually rest a full day even of focusing, zeroing on you. In fact, may it be my life that I live for you in worship. It is the height of prideful hypocrisy to say, I've got Jesus in my life, but it's in that part of my life there, and then I've got a few other days of the week I do some other things. And here we see the grace of God and the judgment of God. For if you're feeling like, yeah, I've been guilty of that, like I see, but I can see I've been guilty of that. I haven't been living for Jesus. I haven't been worshipping him. I've been worshipping myself. I've been worshipping someone else or something else. If that's you, get this. You get grace. Because if you see that, 
Your eyes are being opened. That's the work of God. I can't do that. You can't do that. I can't open anything. Not like that. That is the work of the Spirit of Christ doing something in you that you can see. It's the work of God. And get what you can see. This is it. Jesus speaks about judgment. But do you see who he is? He's the Son of Man who gets all judgment and authority from the Ancient of Days. Jesus is the judge. And Jesus, the judge, is the one who goes to the cross to get judged. Instead of you and I getting judged. So the guilty can go to Jesus for grace and go free. Which means, for you and I right now, where do we finish? And where does life now begin? It begins here, friends. You see what Jesus says to that man? The man wants to see who it is. Who's this that's changing my life? Verse 37. Jesus says this to you. He says, it is God who is speaking to you. It is Jesus who is speaking to you now. Do you hear Jesus speaking to you now? We really do need to spiritually see who Jesus is. We really need that most of all. The problem of many of our spiritual ills, our spiritual sicknesses, and there are manifold symptoms of that, our anger, our grumbling, our shortness with people, The problem of many of our spiritual ills, it's not that we're born physically blind, we're born spiritually blind. We're born so spiritually blind because of my sin and my parents' sin, but my ancient grandparents' sin. And we're so spiritually blind that our vision of reality is cloudy because we don't see Christ in the center of our vision. And we could ask, as the disciples ask, initially that question. Here's the question we need to ask. And I want you to listen to this question. It's so important. Friends, everyone listen to this question. What causes us to not see and save a Christ? What causes us to not worship him with our lives? What causes us to not live with him in every day and every way? Why are we blind even if we say we see? Why do we say we believe and yet we don't gaze at God in Christ? So you can't just respond to Jesus with, I'll see if I can fit you into my Christianity. Jesus changes everything. He opens our eyes. When the man born blind has his sight restored, his life is changed. His neighbours almost don't recognise him. He is changed. Would your neighbours recognise you as changed? That we've had our lives changed by Jesus? Or do we not look that different in their sight? Would you have Jesus change your life, your working life, 
Would you listen to Jesus for one moment so that he would change all the moments of your life? Would you see Jesus change your resting life, your spending life? Would you see Jesus change your priorities in life? Your love of your neighbours in your life? Would you have Jesus change the affections of your life? Would Jesus change your worship life? You see, we can now go to Jesus and have the pride and guilt of our life washed away, not in the pool of Siloam, but by the blood of Christ at the cross for you. We can experience the works of God in our life, even in our sufferings and our sins. Jesus comes to display the work of God in our life, even in our sufferings and sins. Jesus intends to display his work in your life in that way. Will you let Jesus do this for you? Will you see him speaking to you? Will you worship him with laser-like focus now? Because you can. Let's pray we will. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we need not to be blind to what you are saying to us here in your word today. We need not turn a blind eye. We need our spiritual sight opened. Help us by your Holy Spirit breathed word to see and so believe in the gospel of Christ today that we would be changed and the works of God might be displayed in us. We pray. Amen.